Good morning. How's everybody doing today? All right, that was pretty good. I'm not gonna lie, y'all getting better and better at that. That was encouraging. All right, actually, I'm gonna switch mics real fast. I'm a creature of habit, and uh, and this one feels better on the hand, if I'm being honest. Um, hey, so, I already asked you how you're doing, except for now I'm back up here and I don't know how to jump back into where I was, so let's just do it again. How are you doing today? All right, there we go. Hey, uh, if you don't know my name, uh, watch, you know, anybody watching on later, or anybody in here if you forgot it, my name is Josh and I serve as the lead pastor here uh, at Refuge, and, and I'm just grateful to see y'all. I'm just thankful to see y'all. I had the wild, like not wildest, but the busiest week, you know, like I had, uh, we had like our men's breakfast yesterday. I had to turn in a paper by Friday night, preaching this morning. And so the week kind of just flew by and I saw a lot of y'all, but I didn't like, I didn't feel like I saw a lot of y'all. You know, I felt like it was all kind of just a blur and then all of a sudden we were here today. And so in that way, I'm really excited to see you as now I'm preaching uh, this Sunday, which is kind of the last major thing on my list of, you know, things to do this weekend. And so now I feel like all calm and I'm looking at you and I'm like, oh, like there's Oscar. And the thing is like, I saw Oscar on Wednesday, but I feel like I ain't seen Oscar since last Sunday. So I'm feeling good today and I'm happy to see y'all and I'm thankful that you're here with us. And yeah, I just wanna say thank you for joining us today. Uh, hey, we're gonna start a, a new sermon series today and I, I'm gonna explain what that is a little bit. Uh, you probably already guessed being that it's plastered up here. Um, but, but I more so want to start today and kind of introduce the, the time we're going to be uh, in this series with, with a simple question. And that question is, what is your purpose in life? What's your purpose in life? I, I am asking a rhetorical question this time because uh, I know I ask a lot of non-rhetorical questions, but that is a rhetorical question. I, I don't want you to answer it quite yet. Um, here's the thing a lot of us could probably produce an answer to that question. It's not to say that we all are confident in that, that answer. Uh, a lot of us may produce an answer to that question and we're not that confident uh, in that answer. But then there's another group that maybe can't even do that. You might truly look at me right now and be like, I, I don't know. Uh, and, and then you take that um, and you go to the people outside of this room and you ask them that same question. I think the same kind of pattern um, comes up, right? A lot of like, I'm not sure. And whether we can provide an answer or not, the reality is, is that for many of us, I would say for a lot of us, that is just such a looming question in our lives. It starts to dictate like where we wanna work and what we wanna do and like how we wanna proceed forth in our life. And, and whether we look back and think we spent the last several years correctly or whether we look forward and judge the years coming and, and see them as being of value, that simple question seems to dictate so much in our lives. What's my purpose in life? And here, the thing is, when we set out to find it, sometimes it can be a little bit tricky because when you start thinking like, what is the answer to that question? And then you start saying like, I don't wanna find the answer to that question. Oftentimes it can take us kind of on that trip that we went on with uh, the author of Ecclesiastes earlier this summer, right? Where we go from like job to job and like major at school to major at school uh, and relationship to relationship. And we go from new purchase to new purchase. And we go uh, from vacation to vacation. And, and we take all these trips and we're, everything we're trying to find, uh, or in each of those trips, we're trying to find right, something that will make life make sense, that'll kind of make everything click. And then if you're being honest, and if I'm being honest, at the end of all those excursions, we kind of find ourselves with the same amount, if not maybe a few more questions than we had when we started. 
we started trying to answer this question, what, what's my purpose in life? Maybe y'all don't relate to that. Maybe that's just me out here. Maybe that's just my heart out here running rampant like a, like a hungry dog in the streets. That was very vivid, and I'm sorry about that. But, right, uh, maybe that's just me. Maybe you don't relate to that. But, but if I'm being honest, I, I think a lot of us do. I think a lot of us do. And I want to offer all of us who are there and all of us who struggle with that and all of us that will struggle with that an encouragement. Friend, I think, I believe that God sees you. That's not what he desires for you. And that through the person of Jesus, he's forged a better way than, than this weird, like, searching that takes place in our lives. And it's a part of why we're starting a series in Ezra today. Uh, Ezra is an incredible story, and it really follows, uh, right, this, this incredible God, this promise-keeping God that's rescuing uh, a disciplined and chastised people, and he's restoring them to a purpose. He's restoring them to a specific call. He's restoring them by, by giving them what they had felt they lost so many, so many years, decades prior uh, to, to the moment that we're going to pick up in in Ezra 1, and, and have been searching and, and really longing for that restoration for a long time. And then we jump into Ezra, and all of a sudden it's here, and, and, and God is, is going to do it. And, and Really, like, if we were going to sum up this whole sermon in, in kind of like this whole, not just this whole sermon, but this whole series, right, in, in, in a few compact words, I would say that, that we would sum it up as God powerfully acts to bring freedom, purpose, and direction to our lives through his redeeming acts of love, right? God powerfully acts to bring freedom, purpose, and direction to our lives through his redeeming acts of love. And here's why this is important, friends. Because when we talk about what is my purpose in life, a lot of us start to think, I need to go find that. I need to go on that adventure. I need to do this jumping around from this to that and from that to this and from this to the other. And all of a sudden, when we're confronted with an idea that something like Ezra presents us, where it's, hey, God is restoring purpose. How is he restoring purpose? By acting in a redeeming way in your life. By, by providing freedom, right? By providing purpose, by providing direction. And he's doing it through working in your life in ways that are sometimes easy to see and in ways that are sometimes tricky to see. But all of a sudden, we begin to see maybe what I'm searching for on my own, longing to try to find purpose, longing to try to find direction, I, I'm actually on the complete wrong path because maybe rather than searching for the purpose, I'm supposed to be following someone who's going to provide purpose. And let me tell you, friend, those are two very different things. Those are two very different things. Going out there and saying, I'm going to go find my purpose. I'm going to go see what makes sense to me. I'm going to go see how, if I could find that one thing that just makes everything click, is very different than saying, I'm going to follow you. You're going to tell me where to go. You're going to shape my heart and shape my mind. And in the course of following you, I believe that it is your desire to provide the purpose that I so long for as I'm following. Two very different things. <coughs> Yet... In Ezra, I think that's what we see. We see that story, right, where people looking for a purpose, a people looking for a promise, are given it not by, not by searching for it, but rather by God intervening and saying, follow. I'll lead. I'll move. And in that, you'll find what you're looking for. So that's where we're going through the course of the story of Ezra. And I'm excited about it. Uh, we're going to follow this story through the next six weeks. Uh, if you didn't know, uh, Ezra is more than, than, than six weeks long if we're going chapter uh, per week. And so there's going to be chunks that we cover in like a, a, a bit wider stretch. And so we're going to have times where we're 
Uh, let me tell you, we're not going to read them all at the get-go, at the jump. So there's gonna not, I'm not telling you we're going to have times where we're sitting down and you're reading like two, three chapters of Scripture. But we are going to jump through it uh, in some ways. And so we're going to cover the things that we want to highlight and things that we really think uh, provide the best kind of cap to the story. Uh, this week, what we're going to start is we're simply going to start with chapter one, those 11 verses that we read. Uh, and what we're going to do is we're really going to follow three different themes that, that kind of lay out an introduction to this story. We're going we're to listen and think about an exiled people. We're going to think about a rescuer God. And then we're going to think about a restored purpose. We're going to think about an exiled people, a rescuer God, and a restored purpose. And, and we're going to tackle those themes. We're going to start seeing how Ezra is laying out this story, what it means for us. And, and hopefully that's going to kind of lay a path forward to think about where we're going over the next six weeks. Let's start by thinking about an exiled people. As we, as we catch this story, we're, we're catching really one of the most important movements in the entire Bible, if I'm being honest, right? Several decades prior to this moment that we get to uh, in Ezra 1 verse 1, uh, we, we know of something called an exile, a time where uh, God in his discipline allowed for uh, a king to come in and to conquer, right, to conquer the Israelites, and in conquering the Israelites, swept them away, swept up the upper class of, uh, of Judah, which was a, a southern half of kind of the kingdom of Israel at large, took them and swept them up to a city called Babylon where they lived in what amounted to like kind of ethnic ghettos. Uh, they were given a lot of freedom. I'm not going to say that they weren't. They were given a lot of freedom, but nonetheless, they were kind of in a captive city. And, and this is where we get a lot of what we, what we read in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah's looking and being like, hey, you're going to get carted off. You're going to be there for 70 years, uh, but we want you to kind of care for that city. Let me all know the verse. I want you to seek the peace of the city, which is saying I want you to seek the wholeness of that city, because when it flourishes, you flourish. And so there's so much happening there and so many things taking place. But, but where we catch this story in Ezra 1.1 is of people that have been in the midst of this thing called exile for several decades at this point, for several decades. And it's been really challenging because they've been wandering around in a foreign land. They have some freedoms, but not all of their freedom. Uh, and they're surrounded by people that worship different gods, that have different values and views in life. And, and to be honest, though, I'm sure that so many were trying to fight to say, I'm going to be faithful to God and God's ways, uh, because I think this is the path forward for us and the way we can get back to our homeland. There were plenty of people in that context that were struggling and, and conforming to the world around them. And here's the thing, friend, when we think about an exiled people, here's the first thing that I want you to kind of start taking from this section. The first thing I want you to start taking from this section is that we should, uh, we can and we should relate to the feeling of exile. The theme of exile is an extraordinarily powerful theme in the Bible, and it's one that we're supposed to latch on to, recognizing what it feels like to be in a world surrounded by people that go, I think I want to do this. All those people that are on that search we just talked about a little bit ago. Right? They're trying to find everything they can to try and make life make sense. They're trying to find the next thing that's going to satisfy them. They're trying to find the next thing that's going to bring value, find the next thing that's going to bring purpose, find the next thing that's going to bring contentment. And we're surrounded by those people 24-7. We're surrounded by that society 24-7. And it can feel at times, if you're actively and aggressively trying to follow, uh, trying to follow Jesus, that it can feel like you're in a foreign land. Like nobody around you relates and understands and, and no one around you is encouraging you toward this thing uh, that, that you believe brings life. In fact, they constantly look at you and say, join me. Join me in this pursuit. Join me in that pursuit. Right? Jo join me here. Join me there. So we should relate 
We should relate to this feeling of exile, friends. But here's the thing. For a lot of us, we don't relate to it. We don't relate to it. And, and if I'm being honest, we don't relate to it uh, because we kind of are, are on the struggling end. We live on the struggling end of the exilic lifestyle, the, 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 the lifestyle of an exile. We live on the struggling end of that. I, I don't know if you relate to this, and, and maybe you're not quite sure what I'm saying yet. What I'm saying here is that um, a lot of us feel a struggle or a tension in this because a lot of us aren't even really trying to stay that faithful, right? We, 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 know, we don't really know what it is to hold in tension the world around us struggling and rubbing up against us saying, hey, right, you should come and join me in this pursuit and that pursuit. You should go try and find, right, like, like a job, a major, a this, a that, a the other that's going to bring you life. Because in reality, we're not really feeling that tension because we're just following along, right? We're likewise out in the world going, you know what? I'm an Israelite in Babylon, but when in Rome, we might as well be Romans. And when in Babylon, we might as well be Babylonians. And when in Austin, we might as well be Austinites. So let's go ahead and actually try to join the search of what it means to have a job that meets every single thing, to have a career that meets every single thing, to have the exact right relationship that meets every single need, to have the exact right house that meets every single need, or the exact right car. Or let's try and create a life where all of these are mixed and matched, and I have the exact right car with the exact right man, and the exact right woman, and the exact right house, and the exact right job, and the exact right situation, and all of a sudden I can look and go, finally, that is what I needed. There it is. That's what I always longed for. And I think if someone like Ezra saw the way some of us live our lives, and I'm not, I'm not putting myself outside of that. I get wrapped up in it as well. It's difficult. Again, we're, we're exiles, so we're surrounded by a culture constantly telling us this same information, right? I think he would look and be like, man, you, you're searching for the exact opposite thing that's going to actually bring you life. You, and hear me, I'm not saying none of these things are bad. I'm not saying that a job or a family or a relationship or anything is bad, but what I do know is that when good things, those are good things, become ultimate things, it can be like trying to drink sand. What do I mean? I don't know if you've ever put sand in your mouth. I've seen my son do it a million times. <laughs> I don't know if you ever try to drink sand or, or try to just eat sand or put sand in your mouth, but the moment it goes in your mouth, it's like you're 10 times thirstier than you were before. When, when we try to make good things into ultimate things, when we try to make good things into satisfying things, it's like trying to drink sand because every time you try to take a drink, you're thirstier than you were before you took that drink. It's like withering away at your soul, letting your soul know nothing's going to satisfy. Keep trying. You can keep trying if you want, but, but it'll be like drinking sand. You'll be thirstier the next time you actually put that cup to your mouth. And here's the thing, friend, if we're not careful, right, if we're not careful and we're not actually fighting against this feeling of, of being in exile, if we're not fighting against this feeling of temptation from everything around us saying like, hey, no, this will be the thing that actually, actually does this for you, right? This will be the thing that actually sustains. This will be the thing that actually satisfies. And you will find yourself in the worst and most vulnerable type of exile that you can think of where you're thirsty and you're parched. You're dehydrated, you're famined in a foreign land without any direction, isolated and alone. That, that's the threat of something like exile. That's why it was so dangerous. That's why there was so much, so much effort put in from the people of God 
right, to say, hey, how can we sustain ourselves in this period? Because the very real possibility is that when we get exiled, we may go into a foreign land and we may never come back out because we may turn into the foreign land. So there's, there's precautions. We should relate to this feeling. We can and we should relate to this feeling because it's important, right? It's, it's an extraordinarily powerful an important thing. It's tragic and it's a scary place to be if you're not careful. And this is where the story starts. The story of Ezra, this is where it starts. This exiled people that's in this struggle trying to figure things out. This is exactly where the story begins. But praise God, that's not where the story ends. It's not where the story finishes. Rather, it starts uh, in this lost place, but it continues on uh, with the rescuer God. Right? How does God respond to seeing his people in this condition, this kind of lost, a vulnerable, uh, wanting but lacking but trying to figure it out position? He responds by moving. He responds by stepping in. Right? That's why we look at him and say he's a rescuer. You can go to the rescuer God part. Um, we, we, we see him and say, hey, this is a rescuer God. Take a look at what happens in Ezra 1 verse 1. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and to put it in writing. Do you see that? It may be really, really easy to miss because we're looking at Cyrus say some things, but I want you to look at the origin of what Cyrus began to say. The Lord, there's this sort of a, here it's he roused, right? But, but in other ones, it's he stirred. The, the original word means he kind of like awoke. He kind of like woke up Cyrus to say, hey, I'm moving you to make this declaration. Think about that. Think about this was actually a new king. So in the beginning of this verse, it says in the first year of Cyrus, and it's because he just recently conquered the old king. Uh, and in his first steps here as a new ruler, he takes a captive people living in his new foreign capital, and he's like, y'all go home. That's super weird. I'm just letting you know that's not a normal thing to happen. People don't stroll in with captive people, slaves ready to do the work of your kingdom to advance it and go, no, nah, y'all can go. That's not normal, right? It, it would have taken almost like a divine act, almost as if God himself entered into the story and stirred and woke up Cyrus to say, here's what I need you to do. Here's what I need you to do. Now, here's the thing. If, if we got some like super sharp cookies in here right now, you may be having a thought on the back of your mind. I had the same thought. I'm not saying I'm a super sharp cookie, but the two, you know, <laughs> right? You might be thinking to yourself, well, couldn't that have just been like a policy change, right? He, couldn't he have just been coming into a kingdom, needing to make some policy changes? And the risk is like when he comes into a kingdom and he takes it over, there's a chance that people that are captive start to revolt because they're like, hey, this guy just won. But that also means he just went through a battle. And maybe now's a good time to revolt. And maybe now if we all band together, we can really fight the power. So to that point, I would tell you, yes, that is what happened. In fact, Cyrus sent home most of the groups, most of the, most of the captive religious groups that he had conquered and brought to Babylon. He sent most of them home, including the Israelites. I want to lovingly tell you, friend, that doesn't mean that God wasn't still at work. That doesn't mean that God wasn't still at work. In fact, I believe that that means that he was maybe even more at work. I, I love the way um, W. Brian Auker, he's a theologian, and a professor, he, I love the way he says this in, in relation to this subject. He says, political and historical contexts change, 
Rulers and nations rise and fall. At times the church is tolerated, at times oppressed. Nevertheless, God is king over nations and grants his people participation in his purposes in every age. Doesn't matter if, if it seemed to just kind of go with the flow of what Cyrus was doing already. The reality, in fact, that that points us to is that the circumstances in our life, even when they don't seem like they're explicitly in the hands of God, God is still working in them. God is still working in them. Yes, Cyrus came in and said, hey, I got to send most of y'all home. This is a good political move. What we didn't, what, what no one maybe understood except for God's people was that that was the very thing God's people were longing for this entire time. That was the very thing they, they were hoping for. And in a moment, God stirred a man's heart to say, send them all home. But specifically, the, the point that I want is to send them home because I'm going to restore them and I'm going to save them. I'm going to rescue them because I'm a rescuing God. Friends, sometimes the circumstances in your life that don't seem or appear to be just the most dramatic circumstances, right, that maybe even are kind of just feel circumstantial, those are some of the areas God's working most powerfully in your life. And I think that it's worthy for us to ask the question, if we can, can you put it up on that, on that next slide? It's going to ask, it's going to, uh, yeah, there we go. What circumstances of your life might God be working in to bring about his work in your life? Right? What circumstances might God be working in? I don't want to speak too broadly here because I know that there are certain moments where, like, we're just dealing and, and wrestling against brokenness in the world. That happens. I, I don't want you to think that doesn't happen. That happens. Nonetheless, there are moments where, where we're in the midst of a struggle. We're in the midst of insecurity. We're in the midst of, like, struggles at work. We're in the midst of, of challenges at school. Maybe we have some, some moments where we are, are like, in, in great moments with, with our family or, or anything else. And all of a sudden, we, we forget sometimes to realize that, in these circumstances, God is working, that he sees you in those circumstances, that, that he knows you in those circumstances, that everything that's going on behind the scenes that, that either feels like a, a, a storm in your heart or feels like a peaceful pond in your heart, he knows that too. And, and, and he's actively working in those circumstances in order to bring about his purposes in your life. God's at work. God's at work. That's the next point, if you could put it up there. God is at work. And, and I want you to hear that. God's at work. God, how many of us really even believe that right now? How many of us believe that in, in the midst of our lives at this very moment, with all the circumstances that are going on that don't seem either crazy, but don't seem like, like super pitiful or super dangerous, but just in the normal circumstances, the things that are happening on a day-to-day -day basis, that we look at the almighty God, the rescuer, the lover of our souls, and know he's at work. He's at work. Your future isn't insecure. Why? Because he's at work, right? Your heart won't always be broken. Why? Because he's at work, right? The sorrow won't last. Why? Because he's at work, right? This is a, a, a truth that we get to declare and that the Ezra, right from the beginning, gets to show us God is at work. It may seem like he's not. It may seem like everything is normal. It may seem like the circumstances are kind of just plain. It's in those spaces that he continues to work. I'm going to break that thing. All right? He continues to work. Why? Because he's a rescuer. He, that, that's his nature, to see you, to see where you're at, to love you, and to step in to say, I'll rescue. I'll redeem. I'll love. I'll save. Why? Because he's a rescuer God. That's what he is. That's who he is. I sincerely, really, really love the way um, he said it in a little bit of a nerdy way, so we're going to clear it up a little bit. But uh, this man named David Shepard, he's a theologian and a professor. 
He said this about verse 1 in, in Ezra 1. He said, while the first verse begins and ends with Cyrus, the syntactical heart, that means like the sentence structure, right? The heart of the sentence structure, the heart of the sentence structure of one verse 1 is profoundly theolog theological. Yahweh moved. That Yahweh moved. Yes, it was Cyrus that was acting in the world. But it was Yahweh, it was the God of the universe that was moving. Friend, in your life, it may be your boss that's acting, but it's Yahweh moving. It may be your relationships that are struggling, but it doesn't mean that Yahweh is not moving. God is at work. He sees you, he knows you, he's present, and he's moving. That's what the beauty, the, the incredible, profound theological reality is of Ezra 1 verse 1. That yes, Cyrus proclaimed, but God is the one that awoke. God is the one that stirred. God is the one that roused. God is the one that moved. Having said that, I think it's important for us to ask kind of the next necessary question, if I'm being honest, right? If he's a rescuer God and he's out there saving us, He's just out there, he's just out there saving people, right? He's just out there saving people like, hey, it's what I do, right? It's like when that guy hops on the basketball court and he just starts dropping dimes and putting in threes, right? Just Steph Curry shows up and you're like, how's this guy draining all these threes? And he's just like, this is what I do, bro, I don't know. I just, I throw it up there, that bad boy goes in, right? God just does it. He's just who he is. What is he doing it for, though? What is he doing it for? What is he saving us for? What is he saving us for? For many of us, right, we've heard the message of Jesus saying that he's going to forgive us of sins and he's going to forgive us and he's going to die for us and all that good stuff. But if I'm being honest, for some of us, we have spent so much time thinking about how God's going to forgive us of what we've done that we rarely think of what God's saving us to do. I want you to hear what I'm saying again in that. Some of us have spent so much time thinking about how God has saved us from what we've done that we've given little thought to thinking about the question of what God has saved us to do. And so when we walk out there in the world and we think to ourselves, what is the purpose of my life? What am I made to do? We have no idea that God is sitting there going, I got some things for you. And we're like, yeah, no, God, I hear you. But I, but I, I know you forgave all these things back, but now you give me the chance to go into this open canvas of life and to find my purpose. And he's like, no, 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 but but I really have a direction for you here. Like I really, really, I mean, I'm telling you, it's over here, it's really good, and we're like, no, I know. Right, so busy thinking about where we've, where we've come from and what God has saved us from that we rarely think about where God is taking us. And here's the thing, if you can't answer the question, what has God saved you for? What has he saved you to? Then you'll have a really challenging time thinking about what the purpose of your life is. Because friend, let me tell you lovingly, they're intertwined, right? They're intertwined. To answer one without answering the other will leave you with a lacking question. So we need to think about what has God saved us for? And I think it comes in this restored purpose that we find in Ezra 1. Now, here's the thing. At a, at a, at a, at a re, like a eye kind of level reading of Ezra 1, you may be looking at this text and thinking like, I don't see the word purpose anywhere in there. So this guy's tripping. No, you got to get, you got to dig on the surface a little bit. If you dig on the surface a little bit, all of a sudden this really powerful and beautiful thing starts to come out. And so buckle up because we're going to get a little bit nerdy for like two minutes. And then on the other side of that nerdiness, it's going to pay off. Okay, sound good? All right. So here's what I want to do. I want us to look at Ezra 1, uh, three through four, 2 through 4. 
two through four. Uh, I don't have it in my notes, uh, Jackie, so if you could put it up here, that'd be really helpful. We uh, understand that the Lord has aroused Cyrus and that he has made this proclamation. Here's the proclamation he's gonna make. This is what the King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. We go to four. Uh, the house, okay. Did I put, only put up to three in there? Can someone give me a Bible? All right. Let every survivor, wherever he resides, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, uh, and livestock, along with a free will offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. Now, you read that, and there's some pretty cool things happening here, right? Like, like Cyrus is sending them out, but he's also like, hey, everybody help with what's happening here, and everyone help with what's going on, except for that's what we're seeing, 21st century Americans, right? 21st century Austinites. What they were reading was something very different than that. What they were reading was something much more powerful than that. You see, Cyrus starts by saying, hey, we're, we're going to actually, uh, God has called me, and, and, and I feel that I, I have the authority to say, go back to your, your nation and build the house of God. That would already have been a pretty powerful statement, and one that would have rang with all kinds of themes and all kinds of things that were happening, right, in Israel's history. But then he goes on to say something that's really, really, really important, right? He goes on to say, hey, I want all of your neighbors to give you gold and silver and cattle. And for people that were in exile, these exiled people, who have heard the stories of how God had, had moved on behalf of their ancestors in places, I don't know, like Egypt, where they were slaves, but God had stepped in and in the book of Exodus saves them and frees them. They would have been, these stories would have echoed in their heart for, at this point, centuries. And now they find themselves in a weirdly similar situation. And all of a sudden, through the words of Cyrus, they hear a weirdly similar phrase. Because the words that King Cyrus uses happen to be the exact same words that come from Exodus 12. Where in Exodus 12, in the Pharaoh's declaration to the people of Egypt, he says, the Israelites acted on Moses' word and asked the Egyptians uh, for silver and gold items and for clothing. Right, this is pretty simple, but just the sheer connection of these ideas for the people reading Ezra would have gone, wait, God is going to deliver us. God is gonna do what he did back then. God is gonna do what he did for the Israelites in, in Egypt, he's gonna do that for us now. And he's delivering us out of this situation. He's providing the silver and gold. He's surrounding us with people that are gonna support us. And, and he's gonna actually send us out to do the very thing that it happens to be in Exodus they're called to do. Because you see, while we may not have the direct reason uh, or, or the subtleties of the reason here in Ezra 1, remember that Cyrus says, hey, I want you to go back to Jerusalem. And who remembers what he says to go back to Jerusalem to do? to build the house of God. And in Exodus, starting in Exodus, I think it's chapter three, we start by hearing God say, hey, tell the Pharaoh, release my people so that they can go make a sacrifice for me. Then in chapter five, he adjusts it to, hey, tell Pharaoh, release my people so they can go hold a festival in my name. And finally, in chapter eight, when everything has finally come to a bit of a, a head, he says, release my people so that they can go 
and they can worship me. A lot of times we think that freedom is just so that we can go and do whatever we want. A lot of times we think freedom is, is bought for us so that we can go and live however we want. But in God's story, in, in God's ways, right, he frees us to do one thing, to worship him. He frees us for one purpose, to go out into the wilderness and to exalt the name of God above everything and everyone else. And just like they had in Exodus, now here in Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus, the literal opposing captive king, right, is sitting there going, go on, go back home and build God's house so that in God's house you can worship him. Friend, I want to lovingly tell you, God made you for something specific. He made you to worship him. He made you to exalt him. He made you to know the depths of how good he is, how wonderful he is, how incredibly patient and compassionate, how just he is to see him and to exalt him and to respond to that vision by saying, man, he's better than everything else. I, I, I give my life in response to this God. That, that worship, that response of saying, hey, I'll sing with all of my heart. I'm not telling you that you got to be on your knees in every service. I'm simply singing, saying, uh, maybe I'm singing, but I'm saying that, um, that, that in your singing, right, if it's the call is sing from the depths of who you are because he's worthy of that, right? Serve with the fullness of, of what you have to give because he's worthy of that, right? Right, give to others as though you were, you were laying down your life because they're worthy of that. Love your spouse because in, in, in Jesus, we see one that is laying down his life to serve us and he's worthy of that. Care for your job and your neighborhood and your community. Why? Because in Jesus, we see one who enters in to, to capture the hearts of people by serving and loving and not, not, not being served by people, but rather laying down his life as a ransom for people. So we serve and love others because he's worthy. Why? Because God made us for him. He made us for himself. He made us so that in response, in a world filled with people saying, this will be great. Wait till you get this. This will answer all of your needs. The deepest desire of our heart says, man, you can fill me with the drinks of sand that come from those things. But at the end of the day, I can never change that I was made for that one. I was made for that one. And no car, no job, no relationship, uh, no status, no success, nothing that this side of heaven offers me will ever satisfy the aching of my heart as much as going and saying, I'm his and he's mine. And resting in that. It's like St. Augustine said with an absolute banger of a quote. You made us for yourself, O oh Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Uh, a lot of y'all have heard my story, and those that have heard it, you're going to hear it again. Because when I was about 14, um, my life just took a wild spin. At 12, I got arrested. Um, I'm telling you a story because it very much, that's all I could really think about when I saw that quote. When I was 12, I got arrested for possession of some uh, narcotics. Um, I mentioned to y'all before that I, I was a wild boy before I met the Lord. Uh, and so some narcotics, and, and I spent a couple of years on probation. And 
during that time of probation, I was very anxious and very scared, uh, if I'm being honest, because they, they took us as a mandatory thing for our probation to visit uh, a local TYC, a Texas Youth Corrections Facility. And I ain't gonna lie to you, when I got there, I was like, this is not my life, bro. <laughs> I was like, this is not my life. I was not made to be here. I knew so I had some homeboys in there, and one of them was like real hard, and he, was, he looked like he was doing fine. But one of them I related to a lot because he was like a young man who had like, his parents were divorced, but they both really cared for him and loved him. And I saw him, and he looked like he was ready to cry when he saw us. And I was like, bro, that would be me in here. And I was like, no, nah, no, nah, not me. I'm going to be home about 6 p.m. every single night. You ain't never going to come to Miles and be like, where is this guy at? He's on probation. Look, sir, I'm in my room. I'm reading. You're never going to find me anywhere else outside of 6 p.m. without written permission. Um, and during that time, while I was in my room doing absolutely nothing, my dad bought me a guitar. And I just went crazy. I just fell in love with it. Uh, I fell in love with it more than I'd fallen in love with anything else in my life prior to that moment. And I started playing it for hours on end. I would get home and I'll pick it up. And from 3.45 to about 12.45 in the morning, that was all I did for years. So I got back uh, out of probation and my homies came around like, hey, man, you want to go mess around? I was like, I don't really, bro. I kind of just want to stay in my room and play guitar. And that's all I did. That's all I did for years. And in that time, I, I had girlfriends. I got into, again, uh, some, some, uh, some nefarious activity with narcotics. Uh, nothing to what I was doing at 12, which is a weird thing to say, but that's true. Um, and it turned into a 16, then 17, then 18, then 19-year-old boy just going to each one of those places and saying, can I get a drink of that sand? If it wasn't music, then it was just, a little bit of status I could get by playing on a stage. It was a little bit of, a little bit of notoriety I could get by being the youngest person playing at this bar that night. It, it was a, a little bit of that, that sense of like affirmation from a girl or a little bit of an escape from some drugs or a little bit of this or a little bit of that. And it was just a young man just going out there and trying his hardest to find every single one of those spaces and say, will this make it make sense? Will this make my life click into what I want it and what I hope it can be? And it never worked. And by 19 years old, friends, I was, and you've heard me say this before, I was one of the emptiest 19-year-old young men I had ever met and ever seen, and to this day have ever seen in my entire life. A young man that has seen a lot of life and done a lot of stupid things, and still having seen all those things and having done all those things, walked away going, I am empty. I am sad and I am hurting. Until one Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon, I can't tell you anymore because... I was high as a kite all week, every day. But it was a Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon, and I drove to the church that I was attending, and I had a key to get instruments in and out. And I walked in, and I got down on my knees, because I didn't know if there was any other way to pray. That's how I'd been taught. I clasped my hands like this, because that's what I was told prayer looked like. And I just simply said, if you're there, help me. And if you help me, I'll concede you're big enough to tell me everything I need to do and to everywhere I need to go. And 45 minutes of snot bubbles later, I got up and it was like I was a different human being. Six, seven times a day of drugs turned into nothing. I went to my homeboy's house that night because I still had all the same friends. It was a 45-hour snot bubble session, not like a 45-year snot bubble session. And so I still had all the same homies. I went to their house, and I was like, hey, what's everybody doing? Everyone was passing around, like, you know, uh, 
the items used for said activities. <laughs> and uh, got to me, I was like, no, nah, I'm good. Pass by me. No, nah, I'm good. They passed by me. They're like, bro, you're never good. You're never just good when this comes to you. Like, what's going on? I was like, fam, I think I'm a Christian. And they were all, and silence just fell over the room. Everybody was like, this is super weird, dog. Uh, so all you heard was the, the bubbling sound every once in a while. And then, and then finally somebody was like, hey, that's cool, bro. They just kept passing it over me now. But one of the things that I thought about when it came to this, this point was that the next time after that experience I picked up a guitar, it was like nothing I had ever experienced before. Because I had spent years dedicated to this one thing. I'd spent years pouring into this one thing. I'd spent years trying to use this one thing to get some type of affirmation or some type of status or some type of uh, accomplishment or some type of advancement. I'd spent years saying, hey, this is the means by which I'm going to feel where life is going to make sense. It's going to take place through these six strings. That's where it's going to happen. And after I had that experience, the next time I picked up the guitar, I knew that that guitar could do nothing. That guitar could do nothing besides be a compliment to the words that would come out of my mouth when I sang the next day or so. Because the next day, I, I forgot that a guitar existed afterwards, to be honest. I went and hung out with my friends, and I forgot that a guitar was even a guitar. And the next day, I picked up the acoustic guitar that I had in my room, and I started strumming it, and I started singing songs from church. And it was just like, this is what this is meant for. This is what this is supposed to be. When I got this guitar at 12 because I was on probation, an exiled young man thought, this is my means for purpose. This is my means for direction. But a rescued young man at 1920 saw that guitar and said, this is a means to accomplish my purpose. That is to worship the one who rescued me. And I started playing at church like all the time. I started singing. I don't like singing, but I, I tried. I think that's what this story looks like a bit. I think that's what this story looks like. I don't think any of the things that we're giving ourselves to are bad. In fact, they're good. I would never look at a guitar and be like, yo, guitars are evil. There's two guys, there's literally two guitars right there. But what I would say is that everything in your life, friends, the house you have, the relationships you have, the job you have, the success you have, the status you have, right, the, the, the friends you have, everything in your life, not one of them was meant to provide the purpose that you desperately desire. Every single one of them is meant to be a means of the purpose that God has given you. And that's the truth. God has given you a purpose, friend. It is to find rest and love and joy in him and to continue to find that every day of your life, in every circumstance of your life, in every season of your life, because he declares and promises, I'm with you. I'll never leave you. I'm present just like he was for them thousands of years ago at this point, right? Like, so he is with you now. So he is with me now. And my invitation to you, because the scripture's invitation to you is to come, is to step into that purpose. And the beautiful part is that it doesn't start with saying, hey, I, um, I'm changing my, my practices in this and that way. That may have something to do with it, but it starts by coming to the one who has rescued you and saying, I see you, help me, I love you, help me, I'm with you, help me, I stumble, pick me up, 
I'm discouraged. Can you give me hope? I just want to follow you. I just want to put forth my best effort there in, in responding to the depths of love that you've given me. Help me do that. And friend, that's all. Those first steps are more than enough to start walking in the purpose that God has for you. More than enough. So the invitation today is the same as the invitation then. It's the same as the invitation that I took when I was 20. It's the same as the invitation that I have to respond to now when my life seems to get a little hairy and then I start thinking that a good sermon, uh, uh, planting a church or, or getting a bigger house or whatever else will, mark the, will meet the needs that I have. It's the same exact thing. It's the same exact invitation to come, to come. Why? And because you're accepted here by this God. This rescuer sees you, knows you, has accepted you, has brought you into the fold because his son is the one who actually entered into the story, who actually worshiped, who actually relied, who actually gave and exalted the name of the father, yet who is the one that took the cross like, like an idolater, like someone who was drinking sand, like the withered soul that we sometimes tend to be when we seek after things to satisfy us that aren't God. Jesus took that place and withered his soul on the cross so that in response, we could now be brought before the God who gives us purpose in life and said, and, and be received, right, and be cared for. Friend, that's the invitation today, and it's a wide open invitation. And so here, if you a Christian, praise God. My invitation to you would be, uh, for the rest of this series, start thinking to yourself, God, what am I pursuing? What am I pursuing? It's my purpose, it's my meaning that just, it's not gonna be healthy. That feels like that drink of sand that leaves me more thirsty now than I was before. Start preparing your heart there because we're going we're gonna to take moments to attack those things. <laughs> attack is an aggressive word, but it is what it is. Um, and then if you're not a believer, right, I, I, I want to encourage you, man, that invitation is open, right? Uh, that invitation is open to, to know this Jesus that we're talking about, to know this rescuer God, to know this God that desires uh, to love you and, and, and to, to be loved by you, this one who you were made for, right? That, that invitation to know him is there. I'm going to be right there when we finish up. Um, Jermaine is right there. He's one of our elders. And so if you need prayer, if you need anything like that, man, we want to invite you to come talk to us. Because I think that uh, taking the steps of saying, God, bring, bring me this purpose that I think you've made for me in knowing you and in loving you is an important step. The steps after that, we'll figure out together. We'll figure those out together. But that first step is one I think you could take today. And so with that, um, I'm excited for the next few weeks to be in this book and to tease out what it looks like for God to be restoring this purpose. It's not going to be without challenges. We'll see that. It's not going to be without hiccups. We'll see that. Um, but I'm excited about hearing the, the story of how God works in our life to bring freedom and purpose and direction by his redemptive acts of love uh, in our life. And so we pray with me as we close up today. Father, thank you so much uh, for your word. Thank you for the story of what it, what it means to, to be redeemed and saved and loved and restored by, by you. I love you. I love you, and I'm grateful that I get to stand up here and share a story about how my heart was taken by your love. I'm grateful that I get to stand up here before a group of people who likewise would say, I love this God too. Help us, Father. Help us to, to see what you're doing in our lives, to see that in the circumstances of our lives, you may be drawing us closer to yourselves. You may be birthing out a new work in us. You may be providing a miracle, and to respond to that, uh, it, it, by walking in the purpose that you've given us, which is to know you, to love you, to worship you, to exalt you. And so help us do that. Help us do it well. I love you. I thank you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.